Politicians like to misquote Jesus to slash programs for the poor. Liz Theo Harris is fighting back. She's the author of Always With Us, what Jesus really said about the poor. When Jesus says the poor will be with you always, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 15:11. So Deuteronomy 15, uh, 4 is that you'll you'll have no poor person among you if you follow these commandments. These are what the commandments are. And then he kind of it continues and says, but you know, if you don't follow these commandments, the poor will be with you always. The poor will never cease to be in the land. And then it says again, so open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor. So that when Jesus says the poor will be with you always, it's actually an indictment that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing and what God has commanded people to do and societies to do to actually end poverty. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. Progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. In an interview on STAT, that is statnews.com, Republican Congressman Roger Marshall of Kansas, who is a physician, weighed in on the health care debate by quoting Jesus. This is from the article on STAT from March 3rd, 2017. Just like Jesus said, the poor will always be with us, he said. There is a group of people that just don't want health care and aren't going to take care of themselves. Pressed on that point, Marshall shrugged. Just like homeless people, I think just morally, spiritually, socially, some people just don't want health care, he said. The Medicaid population, which is on a free credit card as a group, do probably the least preventive medicine in taking care of themselves and eating healthy and exercising. And I'm not judging, I'm just saying socially that's where they are. So there's a group of people that, even with unlimited access to health care, are only going to use the emergency room when their arm is chopped off or when their pneumonia is so bad they get brought into the ER. End quote. That was Republican Congressman Roger Marshall of Kansas. Here's the question for today. Did Jesus really say the poor will always be with us? What's the exact quote? What's the context? What did Jesus really mean? How do we respond to politicians who use the Bible and Jesus to cut aid to those most in need? I think that the way that many people in our society today, politicians and otherwise, use the poor with you always to justify poverty is actually similar to how slaveholders used slaves obey your masters to justify um, slavery. And I think that if we don't actually see what's going on in these biblical passages and actually, you know, look deeper into this question of is Jesus really saying poverty is inevitable and if God wanted to end poverty, God would do so, then, you know, I don't see how we are going to actually make any progress in terms of of lifting the load of poverty. Liz Theo Harris is founder and co-director of the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights and Social Justice and coordinator of the Poverty Initiative at Union Theological Seminary, New York City. An ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, USA, Liz Theo Harris has spent the last two decades organizing among the poor in the United States and worldwide. She's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Welcome, Liz, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much for having me. What? Tell me first about your work with the Cairo Center. What is it? Great. So the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice is a, a center housed at Union Theological Seminary that is dedicated to looking at 
religion and human rights and what those bring to, to forward uh, transformative movements for change in our country and world. And so um, we are dedicated to raising up generations of religious and community leaders who are committed to building a social movement um, that promotes human rights and dignity for all. And how long have you been working with that? So we founded the Cairo Center about three years ago, um, and it builds on about 10 years of work as the Poverty Initiative. Um, so the, the combined work of the Poverty Initiative and the Cairo Center, who are now one, um, we've been working at Union for about 13 years. Um, and that work builds on, on many more years of grassroots community leaders and religious leaders trying to partner to, to end poverty and other forms of oppression in our society. And you've been working among the poor, as it said in our introduction, uh, for a couple of decades now. Uh, in fact, you begin the introduction to your book with a the account of the Kensington Welfare Rights Union takeover uh, of St. Edward's Church in Philadelphia. Would you review that and, and what that event has meant to you? That's, that's perfect, yes. So um, back in the mid-1990s, I joined an organization of poor and homeless families called the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, um, which was located in Kensington, North Philadelphia, um, Kensington, was the poorest um, census district in the entire state of Pennsylvania. And um, uh, we were an organization of, of families directly impacted by welfare reform and NAFTA and, and other you know, things that were causing poverty and homelessness amongst you know, a, a large segment of the population. And in the winter of 1995, uh, into 1996, um, families moved into St. Edward's Catholic Church. Um, it was an abandoned church, a church that had closed down just that year, um, one of nine churches that actually closed down in the course of that year in Philadelphia um, in poor communities because folks were uh, not able to really afford to maintain these big, beautiful buildings. Um, but at St. Edward's Church, uh, uh, there were still congregants from that church that would pray every Sunday outside of their church. So when poor and homeless families moved into St. Edward's um, in the fall and winter of 1995, uh, those congregants actually came into their church uh, once again with us and then started worshiping in there with us. Um, the, the reason that we moved into St. Edward's Church was um, there had been a series of encampments, of homeless encampments, um, tent cities is what we called them, uh, across different parts of North Philadelphia where homeless families, mainly moms and their kids, um, but people of all ages and, and races uh, who were living um, in, in kind of makeshift tents and shacks um, during one of Philadelphia's hottest summers. Um, uh, the shelters, many of the winter shelters were, were closed down for the summer. Um, the affordable housing list at that time was uh, 18 years on a waiting list to get some kind of affordable housing. And so there was a real housing crisis um, across the city of Philadelphia. And so when it started to get kind of cold, those homeless encampments were starting to be run in over by rats. Uh, families with the Kensington Welfare Rights Union decided to move into St. Edward's Catholic Church, both as a place of sanctuary and shelter, and, and also as a, as a challenge to our religious communities about what is the response um, to poverty, um, to homelessness, to economic insecurity. Um, uh, and, and what should our religious institutions and people of faith do in response. And so we, we moved in um, uh, within very short time of being in, in that church um, and trying to set up the pews to be uh, makeshift beds and trying to arrange things so that people could, you know, actually live as a community there and, and, and have shelter from that, the elements. Um, uh, a, a variety of Catholic nine Catholic priests showed up and, and said to us, um, you know, what are you doing here? 
how how are you in here and um and then they said that we had 48 hours um until we needed to leave um the church and find somewhere else to stay so we um put up a a banner um we found a sheet and we we spray painted on that that sheet um 48 hours where next god um and we hung that right at the entrance of the church um and and it was really an amazing story of uh of people coming together to to kind of uh struggle for what is right and and to try to meet each other's needs and so folks lived in in St. Edward's Catholic Church for months um and really formed a community there um again of people of all ages and races um living together trying to figure out you know how to make a better life for ourselves and our community and and how to really tackle this problem of poverty. Um, It played a really important role in my theological development. Um, When we were living in this church, um, you know, the the words of the Bible, you know, were brought to life. Uh, There were, we we hung up signs um, in the church when we moved in there. different quotes of the Bible, things like Luke 4, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Um, we also hung up this one poster that we found, I think it was from the Coalition for the Homeless um, who had produced it. And it was a poster that said, why do we worship a homeless man on Sundays, but ignore one on Mondays? Mm. Um, and it was really powerful, right? Um, for one, it meant that we were realizing kind of some of the historical context of the Bible and of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, this, these passages in the Bible, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests. But um, as a scholar like John Dominic Crossan has said, has interpreted uh, what what the Bible says is, um, but human beings or the Son of Man or or uh, are are the only ones who are homeless. Um, and so we kind of took that to heart and said, wow, you know, there there have been homeless people before. And in fact, when Jesus walked the earth, he he didn't have a place to lay his head. Um, and and yet somehow our religious institutions have um, forgotten the poor. Um, and so that was a really important um, moment uh, you know, when homeless families moved into that church, it really de- sparked a debate um, across across the city of Philadelphia about, you know, what what are the responsibilities of people of faith, of institutions, but then just people of all conscience, um, uh, believers and and not believers, to to these these real issues of housing, of healthcare, of having adequate food, having a good education, like what what are we supposed to do in times when people are struggling? Um, and you know, what is our responsibility to our neighbor? And so that was a really formative experience. And, um, one where the, as I said, the Bible was brought to life and where, um, some of these theological questions of, of, you know, what, what are the issues that, that God cares about and what are people of faith's you know, supposed to do in in these times. Yeah, and and as demonstration, uh, it really uh, was successful in terms of getting the larger public uh, uh, supportive of your work. Um, yeah, and as the authorities came in and tried to shut you down, there was a great resistance from the larger community. It was it was powerful. I mean, uh, we were there was a photo of um, the group of us that were staying in there in um, the Philadelphia. Um, weekly, you know, one of these weekly, um, newspapers. And, um, it was from that first, uh, it, like from the second night that we were there. Um, and we were gathered around a big table that we were having a meal at. Um, and, uh, the, the reporter that came, came and took this photograph and then wrote a story about this, this homeless kind of takeover of a church. And, and then they, they titled the photo, The Last Supper. Um, and it was just very mm. powerful, right? This idea that the Bible isn't just an historical, spiritual document, but that it's alive in, in the world today. And that 
where there are poor people gathered, you know, trying to make a better life for themselves, that that is that is important and sacred and and the something more powerful than ourselves is present as well. And so we um, we went right after we kind of moved into the church, um, we set up a corner of it for donations. And what happened was that we had an outpouring of support, people from all across um, the neighborhood and the city at large came and would donate things that they had. Um, and one of the things that we, we did was we um, then had more than we needed. Uh, there were about, when we moved in, there were about 30 families. Uh, at the height, um, there were more like 80 or 90 families um, living in the church. And, um, uh, but still we had so much do donations, right? I mean, cause they were really living in a society in a time of abundance. Um, so we had all kinds of toys and food and, and, and so we went to, um, to like a secondhand store and we found baby carriages and we got a couple of them and we would, um, deliver extra food and extra toys and extra clothes throughout the neighborhood because folks needed it. Right. I mean, and, um, and what we also would do when we would distribute the food is we would find out if people in the neighborhood had phones that were working that hadn't been shut off because they also were struggling with poverty issues. And, um, and we, we assembled a phone tree. Um, and so the various supporters from across the city and from beyond the city um, into the suburbs and small towns that we had kind of started to develop, we, we would then have their names and numbers on a, on a phone tree. And if, uh, if the fire department came to give us trouble or if we were having some kind of problem, we would, uh, we would ring the bell of the church. We would climb into the bell tower and we'd ring the bell. And that means the people in the community would know that, that we were in need of some kind of assistance. And they would call the numbers on that phone tree and, um, and let people you know, from outlying areas know that, that they were needed to come and witness. And so um, what, what we were able to see in that was that there was a group of, of college students at a Christian college in the suburbs of Philadelphia from Eastern College. And um, those college students you know, were very supportive of, of the church takeover and of, of the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. And they, um, one of the times that we had to activate the phone tree, uh, uh, and they were called, some students at the college actually ran through the halls of their college dorm saying, Jesus is being evicted from a church in North Philadelphia. <laughs> Come witness with the poor. And, you know, and within a very short period of time, despite the fact that that college is in the suburbs and not, you know, easily accessible to Kensington, North Philadelphia, like, dozens, hundreds of students showed up um, to to say that we are a community here. Like what happens to our brothers and sisters who are staying in this church, you know, really matters to all of us. And um, and so we really did have an impact. You know, we were a small organization of 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 mainly poor moms and their kids and and were able to really have a, a, a pretty significant um, reach and and um, an impact in terms of raising these really important questions of, you know, why, why is it that we have more abandoned houses in Philadelphia than homeless families, but, but homeless families are being forced to live, you know, on the streets or under bridges in their cars and, and, or, or in churches like this, you know, and, um, I think it was it was really important. Um, it was formative for many of us that were involved, but I think it was also, you know, uh, a really important, um, you know, impact in terms of of thinking about what what people of faith, but then also again, all people of goodwill are 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 supposed to do in the face of of kind of poverty and misery and and inequality. 
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Liz Theo Harris, the founder and co-director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and the coordinator of the Poverty Initiative at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She was just talking about the uh, Kensington Welfare Rights Union uh, houseless takeover of St. Edward's Church in Philadelphia back in the mid-90s. And in the course of uh, our conversation there, you were talking about how the Bible came alive. And your book is called uh, Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Uh, and there's a verse in there that's really the center part of this, the poor you will always have with you, uh, uh, said Jesus. And that's a case in which the Bible has often been used uh, against the poor. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your book came together and, and why you wrote this? Yes. Um, no, that's great. So, so. The, this passage, the poor you will always have with you, um, or uh, which in the book I focus on particularly from the Gospel of Matthew. So it's um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 11. Um, but the same verse uh, exists in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Mark. So this this passage um, has been used, um, and I've experienced in my life over the past couple of decades as I've been doing anti-poverty organizing work, um, as really, uh, like, as a block, um, a, a major obstacle to actually getting people thinking that ending poverty is possible. And in fact, people interpret that passage to, to imply that God condones poverty, that poverty might be unfortunate, but it's inevitable. And if God wanted to end poverty, God would do so, right? And so I, I have heard almost on a weekly basis for the past 20 plus years, somebody say, when I say I'm involved in a movement to end poverty led by the poor, or when I say I'm trying to build a poor people's campaign for today, or if I, if I, you know, in the ordination process in the Presbyterian Church, when I when I said, you know, that my call to to be a Christian minister is is a call to work amongst the poor, uh, you know, in all of those settings and in so many more, people come forward and saying, well, that's nice that you're doing that work, but you know, Jesus said the poor will be with you always, and so um, I kind of have been haunted, um, and I think many of us who do the work of trying to build for social justice and, and uh, eliminate and eradicate poverty um, have been haunted by this passage um, because the way it's been interpreted is, is again, used, uh, I would say, in quite similar ways to the way that the Bible was also used to justify slavery um, mm -hmm. during uh, the period of slavery in, in this nation's, um, you know, history, where, you know, back uh, back then, uh, slaveholders uh, both would use these phrases like "slaves obey your masters." Um, they would they would cite the Book of Philemon, um, this story of uh, you know a Christian sending the slave back to uh, to the slave's master. Um, in fact, actually, the slaveholders put together a, a Bible that did not include the Exodus or the prophets or any of the uh, kind of stories from the Bible that were about liberation and um, freeing captives and freeing slaves. Um, and so there was, there was this very strong uh, theological kind of justification of slavery. And at the same time, the abolitionists at that time uh, uh, had to use and, and went back to, to religious traditions as well. And so Harriet Tubman, um, the uh, major conductor on the Underground Railroad, she was, she was named, she was called Harriet Moses Tubman. Um, many of the different abolitionists were preachers and, and talked about how, you know, there was a God of the Exodus and that, that, that the God of the Bible was, a God who freed slaves and who righted wrongs and, and who, you know, um, called for justice for everyone. And so I, I think that the way that many people in our society today, politicians and otherwise, use the poor with you always to justify poverty is actually similar 
to how slaveholders used slaves obey your masters to justify um, slavery. And I think that if we don't actually see what's going on in these biblical passages and actually, you know, look deeper into this question of is Jesus really saying poverty is inevitable and if God wanted to end poverty, God would do so, then, you know, I don't see how we are going to actually make any progress in terms of, of lifting the load of poverty. I'm speaking with Liz Theo Harris, author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. More after the break. I'm John Schock, and you're listening to Progressive Spirit. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. We continue our conversation with Liz Theo Harris, who's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. For people who may not be familiar with the literary context of this, uh, what what is the gospel setting in which Jesus said this? What's happening right there um, is that Jesus is at a dinner um, with the disciples. It's either the Last Supper or it's a dinner right before the Last Supper. But it's it's during Holy Week. It's after Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover holiday and has actually gone into the temple and turned over those tables kind of in this massive uh, civil disobedience um, act that he does. I mean, that's where he goes in to the temple. He says, that poor people are being oppressed and that we need to change how how things are, are organized and structured in our society. And then he starts to get into trouble. Um, the authorities, the Roman authorities have noticed um, him. And, um, and so actually he flees to Bethany, which is where this dinner takes place. And Bethany is, uh, is the Hebrew it means house, Beth, Ani, of the poor. And so Bethany is an actual town that's about 12 miles from Jerusalem. But it also has this kind of larger meaning, too, where, you know, he has gone to the hood. He has gone to mm. the, the ghetto. He has gone to the poor rural area. Like, he's gone to somewhere poor. And so Jesus has gone to the house of the poor. He's in um, the house of Simon the leper. And and what we know about leprosy is not actually much, except for it it it's uh there's a lot of social stigma attached, and so that this is an outsider, this is a marginalized person, um, and so Jesus is, you know, in a in the house of the poor, in a marginalized person's, you know, place of 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 living, and he's having dinner with his his closest friends, his closest followers, um, the people that are building, trying to bring God's reign here um, to earth alongside of him. They're having dinner, and what happens is a woman shows up, and she has this ointment. Uh, the Greek word for it is muron, and she pours that muron on Jesus's head and anoints him. And what's important about that scene is that so muron and pouring muron on one's head is what you need to do to anoint a Messiah, to anoint Christ. So uh, Christ isn't like a last name for Jesus. Christ means the anointed one. Um, and so where Jesus is anointed to to be, you know, the Messiah and who is the Messiah? The Messiah is um, a leader, a ruler who who is supposed to right the wrongs of society, who's supposed to help organize society around the needs of everyone, especially the poor, the widow, the children, um, the orphans, um, the foreigners. Um, so, so Jesus is anointed 
in this way. Like what you need is you need muron, you need to pour it on your head. And, and that's what happens. And, and so this, this happens in this scene, you know, in the house of the poor, in a leper's house around his closest followers. And then what happens is that the disciples seem to be very thrown off by this. And so they, they say, why this waste? And in fact, the Greek word that they say is destruction, um, apoleia. And so they basically say, why did you destroy this ointment? That, that ointment could have been sold for a high price and the money could have been given to the poor. And I think this is actually really important too, that kind of context and that those kind of lines, because what the disciples suggest actually sounds a lot like even today, how we think we're supposed to uh, address poverty, right? You're supposed to earn a lot of money, make a lot of money, get money somehow, and then give some of that money to the poor, right? And, Charity. And I it, yeah, it, it's charity and it, it charity in its best form too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just where, you know, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to pass this money on because people need it, right? And so Jesus responds to this. Um, and and it says it actually in, in this, in the Bible, it says, aware of this, um, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, this passage itself, you know, including this context that I was just discussing, so this, the poor you will always have with me, have, have with you, is, is actually a quote. It's a quote of Deuteronomy 15. And Deuteronomy 15 is one of the most liberatory kind of jubilee passages in the entire Bible. Um, Walter Brueggemann who is a theologian, an Old Testament scholar, says that Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2, where where it kind of lays out what you're supposed to do for releasing slaves, forgiving debts, just organizing society around the needs of, of everybody, that this is one of the most radical parts of the whole Bible. And so and Deuteron- Deuteronomy 15, 4, it says, um, you'll have no poor, poor person among you if you follow the commandments that I'm giving to you today. And what are those commandments? It's to to forgive debts, it's to release slaves, and it's to lend out money even when you know you're not gonna get money back. And that this is what is gonna make your society great and wealthy and prosperous and and whole, right? And so, when Jesus says the poor will be with you always, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 15:11. So Deuteronomy 15:4 uh, is that you'll you'll have no poor person among you if you follow these commandments. These are what the commandments are. And then he kind of it continues and says, but you know, if you don't follow these commandments, the poor will be with you always. The poor will never cease to be in the land. And then it says again, so open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor. So this this whole this whole passage, this line that is used all the time to justify poverty and justify an action in the face of poverty, is actually a quote of this incredibly liberatory passage from the Hebrew scriptures that says that if poverty exists, it's because people are being disobedient to God. And it's because people are are not doing the releasing of slaves, the forgiving of debts, and the kind of organizing society and the economy around people's needs, like not paying living wages, not. And, and so it's exactly the opposite of the way that people have interpreted this passage. So that when Jesus says the poor will be with you always, it's actually an indictment that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing and what God has commanded people to do and societies to do to actually end poverty, that, that God has actually given us plans to end poverty. And if the poor are with you always, it's because we're not following those plans, that we're not li- living into what it is to be um, uh, followers of God. And so to me, this is, like, this is pivotal. This is really important that like, that, 
um, what Jesus is doing is, is quoting and referencing a freedom tradition that his disciples would have been very aware of. So even though we might not at first glance think that this, the poor will be with you always is a quote of a, a Hebrew Bible text, all of the folks gathered at dinner would have known this. They, and they would have known this whole host of teachings about what God has said about you know, loving your neighbor and about providing for everyone's economic security and for forgiving debts and for releasing slaves and for promoting you know, dignity and equality. And so actually when Jesus says, the poor will be with you always, it's this very strong statement that if you love God, you will end poverty and not actually the way that it's been interpreted. So it's a statement, so, uh, yeah, not a statement of inevitability of poverty, but a warning to the disciples that uh, uh, that God, hey, and you guys know this, <laughs> right? Because they've been exactly. with him all along, right? And I mean, every, every, every other thing that Jesus says about poverty is like on the side of the poor. I mean, that I can think of, I can, you know, give, um, give to everyone who begs from you, you know, all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things mm-hmm. that he's, he's uh, not only on the side of it, but also one of them. That's right. That's right. And I and I think to me, that's been one of the things that's so troubling about the way that this passage is normally interpreted is that somehow this kind of trumps every other uh, biblical passage. Right. Like somehow we forget that Jesus is, you know, that that God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. We forget that that blessed are the poor for there shall be the kingdom of God. We forget that, you know, the instruction that the rich man has is to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. We forget that the early Christian communities and acts, you know, all, all like shared what they had and they provided, no one was needy among them. And we forget that James five says, you know, woe to you rich oppressors who, who the, the wages that you have failed to pay your workers cry out against you. And they are crying the ears of God. Right. I mean, just like, passage after passage after passage is about liberation, is about ending of poverty, is about, you know, God being on the side of the poor. And then somehow this particular one passage is taken out of its context and then misinterpreted to say that God wills poverty. And, and, and we, we somehow think that that has the last word. And so it's, it's, it is so important, I think, both to put it in the context and into the context of all of these other passages about poverty, because, you know, there is a very strong mandate in the Bible and a lot of instruction and really starting in Genesis and going all the way through Revelation, there's story after story about poor people coming together, inspired by God to right the wrongs of society. I mean, that this is really what the what the Bible tells us and, and is. And, and so I think that is so important. Liz uh, Theo Harris is my guest. She's the author of Always With Us, question mark, what Jesus really said uh, about the poor. Uh, I remember uh, hearing that perhaps Jesus' phrase of the kingdom of God that he used a lot uh, was connected with the Jubilee year. That part is throughout, and that's, of course, what you do with your book is is show uh, that um, relieving poverty, uh, ending it, uh, bringing on justice is really the whole mission. No, I think this is right. I mean, so, so the, the kingdom of God, right? I mean, I think this is a very important part of, of how the Bible talks about liberation, about freedom, about the ending of eradication of poverty. Um, so the Greek word basileia, uh, that we interpret, we interpret, you know, that we translate as, as kingdom. So the basileia, is another word for empire. And if you talked about Basileia back 2000 years ago, there was only one Basileia and that was Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, this was who, like who was in power. Right. And so if you, if you were talking about a Basileia, um, which you would be because the common language across the empire was Greek. Right. So this is, this is the reason this is in Greek. And so it, it's saying, it's saying empire, right? But then what the Bible does with the Basileia, which, you know, to the people back then would have been Rome, is it says they puts it puts on whose domain this Basileia is. And it says Tao Deo, which is of God. And so 
it, this is a polemic, right? So if, if um, back then, Rome controls everything. People are being, you know, forced off of their ancestral lands. People are being forced to work for way too little money. Um, in fact, many of the expendable workers are basically worked to death. Uh, they, they're, they're kind of homeless workers who work for, you know, a couple of years until they, they literally die because they, they cannot sustain themselves and their families. Um, conditions were, were brutal. There were these amazing building projects um, and these beautiful kind of wonders of the world that were being produced, but it was all on the backs of the debt and taxation of the regular people. And so there was, you know, there was a 99% that were being oppressed and controlled by a 1% of ruling elites. Um, and, and then you have this movement led by Jesus that talks about itself as bringing the empire of God into the realm of reality um, and that and that who who Jesus is and who the followers of Jesus are and who the, the leaders of the kind of Jesus movement. But to some people, it's not called the Jesus movement. It's, it's the empire of God movement. Right. It's and it is directly linked to preaching good news to the poor, um, which doesn't mean preaching at poor people that if they become one with God and they stop their sinning, then they won't be poor anymore. But that preaching good news to the poor in that time meant, you know, eradicating poverty. It meant making sure that everyone had food. Uh, uh, they had a place to be buried if they died and they weren't too poor to die. And so, so I think this idea and, and the notion of, of the empire of God or the kingdom of God is directly connected to uh, the here and now and to economic and social security for everyone. I mean, that these are not some abstract ephemeral ideas, but that the kingdom of God is about, you know, releasing debts and forgiving debts and releasing slaves and, and making sure that everybody can, can not just survive, but actually thrive. If you see the polemic between the Roman empire and God's empire, that, that is being set up in the Bible, then you can actually see that there's a, a this conflict that is taking place. Um, and that's a conflict that's a social and economic and political conflict 2000 years ago that is what is at the heart of what Christianity is supposed to be. And with the idea of a kind of economic platform that comes from the Jubilee prescriptions from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that are supposed to be at the core of society. Um, and so I, I, I think that this is this is really important. Yeah. And OK, so the last part of his statement, um, the poor you will always have with us, but you won't always have me. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So I so I think that in addition to the disciples kind of forgetting what the Hebrew scriptures have said and what Jesus has been teaching them about about how we're supposed to. Uh, eradicate poverty and we're supposed to help the poor. Um, Jesus has also been trying to tell the disciples that he is on a collision course with Rome and that he is going to die soon. Um, and, and at this point, the disciples still are not hearing it. They are still not accepting the fact that Jesus knows that he's going to be killed by as an enemy of the state and that they're being charged with carrying on what what work Jesus has been doing. And and so so I think this just juxtaposition of the, the poor will be with you always, where where it's a reminder of the Hebrew scriptures and the teachings that God has a plan to end poverty and we just need to follow it. And it's up to you all. You all have to take up this mantle because I am going to be killed soon. Um that that's what's going on in this passage. And I think actually Jesus's crucifixion is very important. Um, I think that, you know, Christians think the crucifixion and Good Friday is important because it basically leads to the resurrection. And and I agree that 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 it's really important to 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 have something that leads to the resurrection. But I think that if we if we take out the kind of political nature of what crucifixion is, um, 
crucifixion is a punishment for people who are considered revolutionaries, that are considered insurrectionists, people that, that don't seem loyal to the status quo and to the powers that be. Common criminals, common robbers, or, or even murderers, quite honestly, were not crucified. Who was crucified was somebody who the Roman Empire deemed a threat. So the fact that we know that Jesus was crucified, um, and it's one of the things that we actually historically know, um, because it's what Paul, who is writing the closest to when Jesus was crucified, it's one of the only things Paul knows, quote unquote, about Jesus, um, is that he was crucified. And you wouldn't say that the leader of your movement was crucified um, just to say it, because there was a lot of uh, not good things basically attached with crucifixion. You know, people, it, it was really considered a curse. It was really considered, you know, also because you were an a, a insurrectionist or a revolutionary, then then, um, you know, to be associated with somebody who is a known opponent to the system, you know, wasn't a positive thing. So people aren't kind of trying to claim that because it's something that you would, you would, that there, there could be some real repercussions, real negative ones for. So the fact that what we know is that Jesus was killed as an insurrectionist, um, he was deemed as a threat to the state, to the Roman Empire. Um, it says a lot actually about the life that he was living and the beliefs that he was teaching, because it, it says that then what he was recognized as a threat to the order and to the status quo because of what he was doing and what he was teaching others to do. And so you can see that he's a really important prophetic liberation leader. Um, and, and, and so I think that, that we see that all in that passage though, where you will not always have me. Like he's not saying, you know, you know, think about me, I'm, this is all about me, but he is reminding the disciples that he is in this clash um, and that he's gonna be killed and that they, they need to get it. They need to understand what he's been teaching and doing around them and they need to continue that, that their own selves. My guest is Liz Theo Harris. She's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. And in case those listening think we're engaging in a lot of esoteric biblical interpretation, this has real effects in the present in the secular United States. Uh, Representative Jody Arrington of Texas uh, used this passage, you know, the poor is always with us, to go on to uh, say that we need to have uh, work requirements and all that kind of thing uh, for um, so social services and whatnot. So, in fact, you wrote a letter or a blog post in response to um, this uh, representative. Can you set that up? Uh, what was he talking about, and, and what was your response? A number of politicians lately have been have been talking about this passage and others, um, really using theological language and biblical language to justify um, cutting people off of. Uh, so in this case. Um, it was the idea of cutting people off of food stamps um, yeah. and also cutting people off of Medicaid um, and Medicare. Um, so in this most recent debate and discussion around, you know, health care and Trump care and what, what kind of health care plan we're going to have for our nation, various representatives have actually been quoting a number of different biblical passages, uh, both this one and a, a one from First Thessalonians, which says that if you do not work, you shall not eat. And using both of these passages to say, for one, that poor people are deserving of their poverty because it's their own fault, and that's what the Bible says. Also saying that, like, that because poverty is inevitable, that we should justify cutting people off of these kinds of, um, you know, special supports and services or, or even any kind of health care. One of the representatives lately was quoting this to, to basically say, that pre-existing conditions, um, you know, were, were also something that Jesus, you know, and the Bible uh, had something to say about, which was that, that you had sinned or someone in your family had sinned and therefore you were responsible, like you hadn't lived a good holy life if you had a healthcare pre-existing condition. And so that what, 
you know, using the Bible just over and over again to basically say that people are not worth um, much and that the Bible justifies this kind of inequality and the lack of dignity. And so, you know, I, I don't, I, I really agree with you that, that these passages are not just some abstract passages from the Bible, but that actually, if we look at the news headlines today, over and over again, we have our politicians, many of them not necessarily religious themselves, some of them that do claim to be, but who are, who are, you know, cutting people off of needed services in the name of the Bible, when yeah. when what the Bible does and suggests is the exact opposite. And that's why your work is so important, and I appreciate it. And her book, you should all pick up, Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Liz Theo Harris has been my guest, founder and co-director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and coordinator of the Poverty Initiative at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Do you have a website? Yeah, so... Um, our website is Kairos Center, so K-A-I-R-O-S Center, C-E-N-T-E-R dot org, and um, that's KairosCenter.org. We're also involved in a larger process um, with Reverend Dr. William Barber from North Carolina, with um, uh, folks from Sankofa, from the United Workers, from the Fight for 15, from a lot of grassroots organizations across the country to, to build a new Poor People's Campaign for today. And so... Folks can also find out at poorpeoplescampaign.org more information about joining this new Poor People's Campaign. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that William Barber wrote the foreword to your book. That's uh, That was great, too. Correct. All right, Liz, thank you so much for your important work and uh, and for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. It's really great to, to be on the show, and, and thanks for, for all the work you do. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, ProgressiveSpirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be well.